Our lasso. This morning we return to awareness of awareness and this time probing in upon the observer. Something perhaps even more fundamental, more, more nuclear than even the agent that does this and then does that and then stops doing this and stops doing that. But something more primal, more fundamental than that, perhaps, is the sense of simply being someone who is aware at all, someone who is observing. And so as Padmasambhava guides us in this practice, he invites us, first of all, having settled the mind, then to probe, it, probe our awareness inwards, right in upon our experience of being someone in here, or that which is observing. So he phrases it in two ways. It can go either way. And that is as you're probing inwards and really trying to see what is your sense of being the one who is observing. You can look at this in a personal way. You can, in Tibetan, who or what is actually the same pronoun, interrogative pronoun. Kang. Could be a person, could be just an event. So we can phrase it, who? Who's, Who's observing? So you can phrase it, of course, ask a question and you get an answer related to the question. You ask a personal question, you're going to get a personal answer back. Who? Don't say clock. You know, you, you, can't, you don't get something inanimate in response to who. And so who's observing? And then you, you, may, you may detect yourself, the appearance of yourself arising. Or you may f- phrase the same question, but now in a slightly different way. What is observing? What is the nature of the observer? And you may come to the conclusion, what is observing is mind. My mind is observing. Good. And then as you attend inwardly, how does my mind appear? How does my mind appear? So how do I, the observer, appear? You can phrase it in a personal way. How does my mind appear? Phrase it in a more impersonal way, just mind. Either way, look for what does appear. Now, this may sound very mysterious. I'd like to demystify it. If I ask you to simply observe the nature of the glass of water, that's a really classic glass of water. It's cold, not got that nice frosty stuff on the outside. That's just a really classic glass of water. So if I simply say, observe it, you say, okay, yeah, whatever. But then we can go back to the teachings of the Buddha to Bahia. And he said, in the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd in the felt, which you can't feel, but I can, the tactile sensations arising in contact with the glass, this cold glass of water. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. In the felt, let, let there be just the felt. And observe closely and see if there's any evidence whatsoever Are there being something absolutely objective out there that has that shape and that color, has that coldness, it produces that sound? Do you find something really absolutely out there that has these appearances, like as if it's the, it's the clothing as if it's the attribute something owned by, something possessed by, you know, the glass. Is there really something out there in and of itself? Do you see it? Is it anywhere to be found? You can observe it, you can analyze it. 
And there you are. So in a similar fashion, and a glass of water does exist. The idea is not to come to the conclusion the glass of water doesn't exist, but to probe into how it exists. And in a similar fashion, in this meditation, it's not to come to the conclusion, oh, I get it, I don't exist. I get it, there's no observer. Foolish response. Dead-end response. It doesn't go anywhere at all. It's way too easy, and then it goes nowhere. But rather, how do I exist? Mind does exist. It's valid to say mind is observing. Mind is observing. So what is the nature of the mind? And as you probe inwards, appearances arise. As when we probe outwards, appearances arise. But as we investigate, as we really probe inwardly, do we see anything objectively there in and of itself, independent of all appearances, that has the appearances and that was already there, independent of any perception or conception? And likewise, it is so easy to feel I, the observer, have certain qualities. I have intelligence, I have memory, I have perceptions, I have imagination and hopes and fears and desires. And these are all qualities of my mind. And actually, they're qualities of me. I have hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, mental afflictions and virtues, and so forth. What's the nature of the placeholder? What's the nature of that placeholder? That observer? Or the mind that has all of these attributes? It's not to say that the mind doesn't have those attributes. It's not to say that I don't have virtues and mental afflictions. I do. What's the nature of that which has? And as we probe inwards, do you find that there's something really in here, subjectively, inherently existent, that has these properties? Or is it just, as we attend outwards, there are just the appearances, and there are empty, they are empty of anything more than the appearances. And as we probe inwards, there are appearances. And those appearances are empty of anything other than the appearances. They are just appearances. A matrix of appearances. Okay. Or as John Wheeler said, it's just all information. It's just all information. What is information for a physicist other than appearances that you get from your measurements? It's appearances. And it's all information out of which then we conceive the subject and out of which we conceive objects. And they are valid conceptions Physics is a brilliant science. I really love it, actually. But it's all coming out of information, and that's what we really have. So, final point. How do we exist? Coming back to Barbara's question yesterday, you asked about emptiness. But I want to ask the flip side of the question. Okay, I'm empty. Okay, let's imagine I'm empty of inherent nature. There's no intrinsic, inherently existent Alan or me in here that exists prior to and independent of all conceptual designations. So, empty of that. All right. But nevertheless, this person does exist. So how do I exist? If I'm empty of inherent nature, how do I exist? And how I do exist is I exist relatively. Just as John Wheeler says, all the information we get arises relative to assistance of measurement. As Stephen Hawking says, there is no absolute past. There is no absolute objective past to the universe. All the pasts arise relative to assistance of measurement. Right? The role of the observer-participant... Likewise, in the Madhyamaka, the middle way view, I do exist. I exist relative to conceptual designations. So right now, for a very brief moment, and not for very much longer in this retreat, I'm arising as a teacher. When I'm here, over there, I'm just an eater. Over in the dining hall, I'm not a teacher, I'm just an eater. Right? But here, I'm sitting on the, on the teacher's chair. And so here, I'm arising as a teacher. But I'm hoping to see 
one of my te- well, I will be seeing His Holiness Dalai Lama in a couple of couple of few weeks in in, in Australia. When I'm engaging with him, do you think I'm arising as a teacher when I'm with His Holiness? No, I don't think so. I'm arising as a student. I hope to see Gautama Rinpoche. I'm arising as a student, right? But I'm going to see my grandson pretty soon, and I'll be arising as grandpa, not teacher, not student, grandpa, and then spouse and stepfather and customer and person who's just in the way on the freeway. <laughs> Why don't you just get out of the way? Whoever you are, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, can you just get out of the way? I'm in a hurry. You know. So we are rising and arising and arising from moment to moment to moment. We're arising with respect to ourselves in solitude. As we conceive of ourselves, we designate ourselves. We're arising and arising and arising in a myriad of ways, all relative, all empty, and all causally effective. I, when I'm engaging with my grandson, I'm a causally effective grandpa. And he's arising as grandson. Causally effective. Grandson, grandpa. You know, like that. But then, at some point, the show is over. All this conceptual imputation, this relative conceptual imputation, at some point it's over. And the conceptual, the conceptual designations, the labeling and so forth, dissolve. And you have... As in a three-part play, you have, what do they call it, the interlude? But there's something, another word for it, intermission. Intermission, after the first part. Intermission. And the stage goes empty. And you know what happens? The audience doesn't freak out. Oh, no, all the actors are dead. The play's over. The actors are dead because there's nobody on the stage. Nobody thinks that. It's just, no, they've just stepped off stage for a little rest. It's called the substrate consciousness. Conceptual designations have temporarily dissolved. There's nothing to freak out about for those practicing shamatha. I think a number of you are. Fear arises. <laughs> Fear arises when you think, my role is coming to an end. I was the meditator. I was the good meditator. I was a crappy meditator, but better a crappy meditator than no one at all. I'm going to disappear. <laughs> and when you see that, just as there's no danger of the, all of the players step, st- stepping off stage and just resting up a bit. They don't actually die. They just, in case you were wondering, you know, they're, just, they're just stepping off stage. And so likewise, when you allow your mind and all the conceptual designation of I am to dissolve into the substrate consciousness, there's nothing to fear. And then to emerge. And so Descartes' famous aphorism, he didn't quite finish it. Maybe he coughed. And then we didn't get the last part. I think, because he didn't finish it. He said, I think, therefore I am. But I think what he meant to say was, I think, therefore I am what I think. <laughs> so is it possible, final word, is it possible to falsely designate, to make mistakes, or is this all just a make-believe world that whatever, so let's all, first of all, we'd all need some marijuana cigarettes. To, to, whatever you believe, dude. It's your reality. <laughs> Be cool. <laughs> That's one route. <laughs> For some of you, been there and done that. <laughs> so we can't take that one too seriously. So it's not the case that whatever you think is true just because you thought it. Right? And it, that ain't so. Right? 
On the other hand, that which we conceptually designate validly, saying, for example, that Jupiter has moons, that's a true statement. But it's true statement relative to the systems of measurement relative to conceptual designation. It's not absolutely true. So it's not hypersubjectivity of whatever you think is true, nor is it there is already a pre-packaged, pre-existing, absolutely real universe already out there just waiting to get the right labels. Neither one. It's something in between, and it's called the middle way. So, we'll settle body, speech, and mind in its natural state. We'll rest in presence with no object. And then, as you wish, start probing inwards and see what you do see. See what you do see as you seek to observe that which is observing, phrased personally or impersonally. See what arises. Just like when you look at a glass of water, see what arises. And in the mentally perceived, Buddhist teachings to Bahia, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. And be satisfied with that. Okay? And then at the end, just come to rest in the center and stay there. Find a comfortable position. So, as you all know, the Buddha taught shamatha as a foundation for vipassana in the service of vipassana so that the vipassana practice can be fully effective, do that for which it is designed. (coughs) But in this practice, it's turning at 180 degrees in a way. This is a type of vipassana practice in the service of shamatha. And it's designed to do something very simple. And that is break through the coarse mind. Break through. Melt, dissolve, shatter. Break through the coarse mind. Break through the ordinary, reified, habitual sense of I am. Release it, break through it, melt it, dissolve it, whatever metaphor you like. But you can't take it with you. The coarse mind, you cannot bring your coarse mind, the mind that you're so familiar with, you can't bring it with you. It's just kind of, you know, like hopping onto a a jet in economy and bringing 200 pounds of luggage. So sorry, you just can't bring that much luggage. You can't bring your coarse mind down to the substrate consciousness. You can't bring your ordinary sense of I am, your identity, your personal history. You can't bring that down to the substrate consciousness. You either stay up there floating on the surface or you let go of the baggage and recognize that in letting go of that baggage, there's nothing to fear. So enjoy your day.